episode, Dario talks to visual artist Janice Raffa about her sensuous, enigmatic first feature, Kala Azar. Set in a nameless southern European wasteland, a stoic young couple exist in a semi-feral periphery. They survive by collecting and cremating deceased pets for owners who need the fantasy of a ritualized burial. But they also cannot help but clean up the number of dead animals which they regularly encounter lifeless on the roadside. A film that challenges the material and ideological distinction between humans and animals and forces a confrontation with uncomfortable realities of a dystopian existence that defines increasing numbers on transient souls. Neil also reviews a couple of new Blu-ray releases including Spike Lee's Jungle Fever and the East Asian action film Time and Tide, directed by Sue Hark. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider joining us on Patreon, where you'll get access to all our bonus material, including our monthly newsletter. But for now, on with the show. Welcome to the Cinematologist podcast. I'm Neil Fox. And joining me, as always, is the incomparable Dario Linares. Hello, Dario. <laughs> Sorry, I was just laughing at that little hesitation. Well, I wondered what was good, what was going to come out. <laughs> keep you on your toes. No, I thought I haven't used a haven't used a suitable adjective to describe you in intro for a while. So, and yes, I think incomparable well, sums it up. Well, thank you. I, uh, I appreciate that. I'm, I'll try to think of something uh, for the next uh, next episode that you know, maybe something that, that rhymes with the something of Luton. You know, oh, the okay. uh, you know, I don't know. I'll have to think about it now. I've been put myself on the spot. And oh, I'm excited, um, I'm excited now. I'm excited now. Yeah, because I've heard a lot of the of Luton adjectives. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Uh, hopefully, it, indeed, a new one. <laughs> yeah. How are you, buddy? I'm I'm pretty good. Um, I'm in that. That for this last week has been that phase of decompression from marking, which is it's funny because I wanted to get into other things quite quickly and into writing and into catching up with podcast stuff as swiftly as possible. And I always feel you need like a few days to be able to, you know, just sort of take stock and then think, right, I need to do this, I need to do that, and this is the order I want to do things in. But I got into writing this piece I'm doing and the editing of a, of a podcasting book quite quickly and sort of knocked out a couple of thousand words um, fairly swiftly, really. So that was nice. So it, it made me feel as though I'm going to be able to get that done in the next six weeks because that's my aim before I go away on, on the break. But then it's just been nice to, yeah, do a little bit of reading, record the interviews for this week. Been really looking forward to this chat and then having... Interestingly, having the football on in, in, in the background has been nice. It's just, yeah, I mean, went through a, a real sort of anti-football phase for a while. Um, I was just like, don't want anything to do with it at all. But I, I think, you know, getting all high and mighty about that has, has actually stopped me from sort of thinking about what can you use to to have a focus that's beyond just things like like work. And I think you know, yeah, just having things that are kind of gloriously don't matter and you can enjoy them for that is is fine. Absolutely, yeah. I think football is in in a similar space, I think, to to cinema in in terms of like the, the discussion around it and the commentary around it could be quite binary, you know. And I think since I've I sort of wrote a little bit about this in the newsletter a couple of months ago, but I think once I sort of stepped back from the, the conversation and was happy with my own understanding that it is 
a deeply problematic thing, elite football, more than any other elite sport, probably sort of outside of the American sports, maybe. But but does that mean it, you have to completely discount it and you can't you can't enjoy it for what it is and you can't appreciate the things about it which are positive? Like it's one of those things that yeah, the the more I've been more comfortable knowing my relationship to it, the easier it's been. And I, I I've been the same. I think it's been lovely to work through stuff and have have the game on on the iPad you know just sort of going on and sort of checking in I love the little highlights packages you know I love the end of a day just sort of looking through it for me it's 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 got so many nice things it's been good I think because for me I'm similar to you but I'm in that week or so where I forget how busy June is I forget how busy I always think like once the marking's done I can just go into research and it's you know last week particularly and, and early this it was a reminder actually there's so much to do because you can't do it when you're teaching and marking and then before you get to that research bit there is a ton of stuff to do so I've had to kind of put off little bits and pieces that I was going to work on particularly for the book and just be like actually get this list down so that by the end of June I can I can have that headspace yeah so interestingly similar so what have you what have you thought of the the football I think it's been really um with the expansion of the of the tournament now to 24 teams, I think that's really been been great because it, it's given sort of teams that you wouldn't ordinarily see a, a kind of space to be able to play. But I, I think, you know, you can just, you can so obviously see, and I think it's probably even getting more apparent the how the kind of main European powerhouses are just, they've got so much, so many resources and so much support. And then you get those mid mid division teams, really, sort of you know the Austrias and this kind of thing that always qualify, but then never really never really do anything. And I think the whole tournament was sort of put in a slightly different context with the Ericsson thing, and obviously that that had a that had a big impact. And again, it's interesting that happening on the back of this tournament coming after the pandemic, and it's just another one of those those moments of what you know what does what does it matter what does it all mean and i think people were really keen i mean it did obviously affect the the denmark players and and i wasn't particularly happy with you know as i'm sure they weren't with, with the sort of way it, it panned out in terms of uefa giving them a choice oh you have to play now or you have to play tomorrow again and then there was that that incident with the with the concussion but i just think you know there's been some lovely i mean italy have just been wonderful great to watch and and you know, I, I think when this goes out, England will have played Scotland. And I thought I was encouraged by the England performance. And I'm really keen on the team doing well. And, you know, again, you know, but, um, understanding the sort of world that we live in and the, and the, the political con- connotations with everything right now, I really want players like like Rash- Rashford and Sterling to do really well and, and, and just say, you know, fuck you guys. You know, and your and your whether you support us or not in terms of the knee taking the knee thing, because I think they're a nice they're a nice group to support. It seems like there isn't that that irksomeness and entitlement which there has been in the past with the England team, which which has often made me sw- turn off and think, who else can I support? You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point there. I think because I think it's it's a reminder of that populist entertainment and activity is often a site of critical race debate or critical political debate in a way that the other things can't be because but, but I think having that conversation going on and and having that very visual and clear on you know, sort of representation of the the hypocrisy of, of certain parts of society I think is you know is important particularly at the moment and uh, yeah and like you say about the Ericsson thing I think it's 
people moaning about it, but it's, you know, like it's a way of, of creating an understanding or a deeper understanding in a way that other parts of society or culture or art just can't can't get to because of the, the engagement that a majority of people have with the thing. So, yeah, interesting times. All stuff to find in, in, in this as well as the, the sheer entertainment of watching the world-class players do their do their thing. Oh, no, I mean, I think we're both on the same page where, you know, there is always that there is something sort of transcendental about seeing somebody at the top of their game do something like that, that the 47 yard goal, just to see that happen. And the, the technique was just wonderful. And that, you know, from a sort of Leeds perspective to see Calvin Phillips's performance, which was, you know, we're dubbing in the York Shapiro now. And you know what I mean? He was, it was that good. So, you know, it's, it's just all, it's just all, all nice to, to, to see that. And um, on a completely different note entirely, Th- those things that, that that just make you gratified and 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 satisfied in terms of you know the things that you're doing and the things that you're interested in and with regards to the podcast it was just so nice to get a really nice email this week from a, a, a patreon subscriber called Jerome Cargill so Jerome thanks so much for your email we, we really appreciated it and you know we get quite a lot of contact these days but this was just as fulsome uh, <laughs> an endorsement of our our work really on the podcast as as you could have and and just yeah really detailed outline of of all the things that he likes about about what we do and 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 suggestion of of a topic to speak about in the in the future and i was just sort of blown away by it yeah just it just sort of left us both speechless um you know and i think we're very fortunate that yeah we over the years we've heard what people like about the podcast what they find interesting about it what works for them and the place it has in people's in people's lives but yeah it was just you know just the care and thought that went into it was just just really lovely and yeah just a, a really great affirmation of the, the 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 podcast and the work we've tried to do and i think what was interesting about it was we've been doing it a long time and even at the start you know we had a general sense of what we were trying to do but a lot of it was instinctive and a lot of it was just you know kind of wanting to do something that we liked um, without necessarily articulating that. Although, as Jerome sort of put in his email, we've, we do a lot of kind of reflection and articulation, but still the the things that I guess are meaningful to us about it are not always that obvious. And he really sort of tapped into a lot of that, which was just really kind and just, yeah, spent, he spent a lot of time pulling out different episodes that he liked. And the fact that, yeah, we sort of introduced him to certain films and certain academics was was just really wonderful. Yeah, and Jerome's a um, A level film studies teacher, so his suggestion that the podcast is is valuable in that context is really gratifying. And he asked us about you know putting on a an episode that examines the sort of state of film education from more of a school perspective or a, a sixth form A level perspective. And to be honest with you, we'd have to get either him on or him and some other people on to to do that. I mean, you, you're probably you know, with your the PhD that you did, you'd have more of a sense of the relationship between um, film and media education at school beyond what I read in the papers about it being contracted, like all arts and humanities education across all sectors is being, you know, is under attack really. But that, that sense of how what is taught schools feeds into education at a higher level is a topic I think that is is worth broaching but we need some help on that i would anyway yeah no agreed i think you know it was kind of exciting because as you said i did i covered a lot of that stuff in my 
in my doctorate around sort of policy and education policy, um, particularly in the UK. But that was 2012, 2013. The last time I looked at that, when I looked at the kind of the BFI's five year plan. So it's yeah, nearly nearly a decade. Wow, that, that feels makes me feel really old now as well. Um, <laughs> a decade ago, I was mm. working on this. Um, wow. But yeah, yeah, but but a lot has happened. I think like in terms of the things that that Jerome sort of picks up on in terms of colonization and you, you sort of said the, the retraction of humanities um so i'd really like to get into that you know and i've got a little bit of a background but i think bringing in people to to have that discussion would be great and i think we know someone as well who like um ellen cheshire who's on been on the podcast a few times she works yeah. in on the a-level film syllabus so you know we've got we've got contacts but it'd be good as well to kind of to open that up and get people I think it's an important yeah. conversation and yeah thank you jerome for suggesting that and for yeah just a really really wonderful email which made our made our year for, for sure and if he wants to come on and do it he'd be most welcome for sure absolutely you know yeah. um yeah so that was uh that was really nice um and also we got a, a new patron in lucy bolton our friend lucy who is um one of the leading lights in the film philosophy kind of group of research and obviously we've covered that conference a few times she's a great writer on on Iris Murdoch and or and a big fan of Holy Motors. So anyone who's a fan of Holy Motors is is all right in my book. So thanks, Lucy, for for joining. And and I spoke um, to her this week. I spoke oh, to did her you? Sorry, for the podcast. Yeah, no. Um, for my long gestating magazines edition. Oh, okay. yeah, of course. Um, and Lucy guest edited an edition of Garage Land magazine, which is a fantastic arts magazine. Um, so I talked to Lucy and the the Garage Land editor, Kathy Lomax. And that'll probably go out in the next season because I've got a couple more to do. But um, yeah, really lovely to catch up with her and talk about talk about film and magazines. And thanks for signing up. So yeah, if you uh, want to join us on Patreon, if you think you know you enjoy the work that we do and if you saw us in the pub and you think, oh, I'd buy them a pint for uh, for producing the cinematologists, then it's a, you know, we don't have advertising as we've said before and we, we base our support on a kind of, acknowledgement of uh, of value in a holistic sense so it's less about the money and more about the yeah we recognize what you do but it it, it all goes into helping out and we've had to we've had to switch over to a new software system um because of just technical issues left right and center but hopefully next week when i get my new kit that will be resolved a little bit and you've sorted out you've been uh, you've been negotiating with vodafone this week as well neil yeah i had a Pretty traumatic recording experience um, for the podcast. Um, well, we got through it thanks to my guest, uh, which will be hopefully in the next episode. Um, but yeah, had to had to do the hour and a half diagnostics with them because my internet just kept dropping out. And it's weird, like you just realise how reliant or how automatically we just plug in and record, and then you know you forget how how reliant you are on so many different things to to go right. And yeah, absolutely that 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 part of the the support we get the Patreon to be able to sort of cover some of these things is absolutely yeah invaluable so much appreciated so we we have an interview coming up and we'll introduce that in a second but neil you've got a couple of reviews that were on the shelf from uh, a little while ago but um yeah what what have you been seeing yeah so just yeah wanted to really quickly mention masters of cinema eureka's release of harkshui's 2000 time and tide which is yeah kind of billed as sort of east asian kind of action cinema but but a bit more subdued than normal a bit more kind of drama focused it's about a young man um who's looking for quick cash and sort of becomes a bodyguard in this kind of bodyguard company and makes friends with this this sort of ex-mercenary who's trying to sort of start a new life a really interesting sort of central dynamic and as you can imagine with that kind of setup lots of 
lots of hijinks and really good, you know, just really interesting, really good performances. But it's worth watching, certainly for the last the last sort of half an hour, 40 minutes, which is one of those classics of East Asian high concept sequences where right. there's, there's you know, a huge fight between the two the two sides, so the good guys and the bad guys and the police in this uh, train station next to a, an arena where there's a pop concert going on and it kind of, so there's a there's a baby, you know, there's a delivery of a baby, which is not going to be a spoiler because you kind of know from the first half an hour that the baby that's in this woman is going to come out at the most inopportune moment, <laughs> in the most inopportune place. So there's a great kind of sequence with the baby delivery that then kind of rolls out into the, the rafters of this pop concert, which is absolutely just thrilling so no, that sounds good i, I yeah. must say like, like like the sort of high concept setup of an action sequence now it has to be really really well done for it to be like yeah i've seen i haven't seen this before but it sounds like you know this is worth worth having a look at yeah you know and it's from it's from 2000 as well it doesn't feel particularly dated but certainly the the concept and the choreography of the sequence is just absolutely fantastic um so it might be a bit slow burn a bit pulpy in the start, but it's definitely worth sticking with. And the other thing I watched uh, was Jungle Fever, which was the Spike oh, Lee, right. okay. yeah. um, which I hadn't seen in a long time, but the BFI recently reissued that on Blu-ray. And really interesting sort of watching recent Spike Lee and thinking that his approach to narrative storytelling has kind of got more tangential and more kind of less kind of strict and less kind of driven by kind of sort of single. And you realise actually that he's always been interested in kind of following characters outside of what might be termed the plot. Jungle Fever's got some really, you know, it's obviously got the kind of the central plot of um, of the interracial uh, romance between uh, Wesley Snipes and Annabella Ciora. But then there's there's family stuff and there's work stuff and not just with those two characters, but with kind of the other characters. And it's a reminder that he's always just been interested in people and situation, you know, and in a particular environment. And... I think there's a lot that doesn't quite work with Jungle Fever for me. Certainly the ending. I mean, the last the last moment, I forget what, what kind of hilarious and ridiculous final image it is with Wesley Snipes in the street. It's just like, God, this is this is pretty terrible. But yeah, but just that he's such a kind of bold filmmaker in terms of going down these these paths where he's interested in context and character and is happy to just sort of leave the main thread of the narrative. And there's so many wonderful sequences in it and has has been written about this sort of reissue, a reminder of Samuel L. Jackson's performances as Wesley Snipes' sort of crack addict brother and what a what a performance that is, you know, doing that really interesting Spike Lee thing of kind of just subverting the the expectations of what a character like that is going to be from a moral position. Like the moral position of that character is so fascinating and Samuel L. Jackson just knows exactly how to play it. So, yeah, it looks great. And, yeah, nice reminder, actually, He's 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 had a very particular approach to narrative all the way through. Yeah, yeah, his career. It's I mean it's always I think really instructive to, to look at a filmmaker like Spike Lee purely on an aesthetic level, and and it's just increasingly difficult to do. You know, if if, if you think about you know, in the Five Bloods come you know the Five Bloods comes out and it's just oh what is this saying about race in America and uh, you know all of his recent films have been been like that and the Black Klansman as well just even more so probably. But just to sort of to think, what does this, even in his sort of earlier days and, and the mid-period stuff, like, you know, 25th Hour and stuff, really interesting kind of setup and structure and, and what he's doing as a filmmaker is often overlooked now, which is which is kind of a shame, really. Yeah, you know, and 
it is because I think that obviously his his influences in terms of sort of classic Hollywood are really apparent in Jungle Fever, or particularly kind of seventies Hollywood, I would say, aesthetically. But then, like, there's this yeah kind of narrative approach which is which is not like that. So there's always much more going on, like you say, aesthetically and stylistically than I think he's he's been given credit for, and because his characters are so vocal about context and politics, often. His his work gets reduced to him the the mouthpiece, but you forget how how there's both kind of a lot of there's a lot of nuance in those those kind of characters, but also it's it's those characters in the aesthetic context, which is really fascinating. Looking at Wesley Snipes's you know life as a visual palette in terms of his parents and his wife, and then this kind of weird sort of you know extramarital tryst and that there's so much about spaces that are just really fascinating to to think about in a kind of cinematic context which is yeah which was really great to spend some more time with so yeah thanks to bfi and master cinema for sending me those those blu-rays and yeah i guess we should move into the main uh, focus of the episode which is an episode that you've set up dario so why don't you tell us what we're going to be hearing and talking about today Yes, so we are going to discuss the debut feature of uh, Greek filmmaker Janice Raffa and her film Kala Azar, which is currently available on Mubi. So um, we've got an interview coming up with Janice, uh, so I suggest you go and watch the film first, really, before uh, listening to the interview, really, um, before listening to the interview. And full disclosure, uh, Janice is an ex-partner of mine, without going into sort of nauseating personal detail yeah we were together for you know a good length of time in, in in our 20s so it was my kind of reaction to the film and I've written about this in the my weekly viewing diary is sort of my thought process in terms of coming to a piece of work a piece of work made by somebody I know very well and it was kind of similar to when I watched Wilderness in a way but very, but 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 very different also you know yes let's make that clear. Of, yeah 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 um but you know what I mean? It's kind of, I hadn't spoken to Janice for a good seven, eight years. I don't, I don't think, and we, you know, we got on fine. You know, there was never any animosity between us. And in fact, I think there's a sort of acknowledgement of how, you know, two people influence each other in a particular time of their lives. You know, and definitely one of the things about watching the film, for sure, was how much I could see her and her artistic sensibility and the things that she's interested in coming from a visual arts background, and I'm sure that's something we'll talk about afterwards and we, we sort of mention it in the interview. It, it was just such a fascinating film to watch from that perspective and also just, you know, the, the fact that I really, really liked what it was doing in, in terms of trying to do something unique and something different and having the confidence to do that as a, as a, as a first feature, really. Mm. Yeah, I think it's a great episode, um, fantastic interview, and yeah, it's a film that's really, yeah, really worth talking about uh, for a number of reasons. So I'm glad. I'm glad we're going to get the chance to do that after this interview. Okay, great. So this is me talking with uh, the film director Janice Raffa about Kala Azar. So welcome to the podcast, Janice. Thanks so much for taking the time to come on. Thank you, Dario. I'm very glad to talk with you 
uh, after a while, actually. And uh... yeah, yeah, after a little while. How are things with uh, you right now in in Athens? Um, what kind of what phase of freedom do you have there at the moment? Are you allowed to go out? Yes, apparently we are. I think uh, it was the moment spring came, or actually we, we don't even get spring here. We go straight into summer. So at the moment the weather started getting better. It was the moment the lockdown kind of, the harsh lockdown ended up. So we are now uh, able to go out and, you know, we have the pubs, cafes open. It's much lighter. The atmosphere, schools are open also. Yeah, it's the same here now. So in, in, in London, I mean, we just had a, you know, we we're supposed to have a complete opening day. You know, Freedom Day it was called by our our dear leader and all his wisdom, but that had to be put back for four weeks. But I think, that, you know, I think that they're being cautious rightly, and uh, things are getting better. But has the last has the last year had a big impact on the way that you think about your work or think about your your life? I know from you know we've talked a lot on the podcast about looking at the way we do things and what's important and what's not and all of this kind of thing yeah i suppose the concept of freedom days uh, have to be reconsidered um, every time this kind of new structure of you know the new lifestyle that uh, we are getting used so um no i think the biggest impact it actually had for for us for for us as a family or for me personally i think it was that my work started getting darker and darker <laughs> and and it I think it's kind of uh, relevant to the fact that we are stuck inside or there is a kind of this limitation of space of, I don't know, my imagination start going, you know, darker and darker into kind of interior world, which I always loved the landscape and I end up making new works that they're always closed in dark interiors. To me, knowing your work not just the film, um, but also, you know, your previous work and how interested you are in in people who live and work on the periphery of modern society. And now, you know, it, it's funny how in the last year they have become, you know, we realize that they are the, the vital workers. But now suddenly, you know, that even that discourse has gone back to the, the periphery again. It's like now we're opening out. It's like, oh, how do we get back to, to, to normal? Yeah, there is a reversal of kind of a reversal of of using spaces and what an um what freedom within a space means so the kind of the outdoor and in so this kind of the periphery the people in the periphery humans and animals in the periphery somehow are the ones who have the freedom um to continue being there more or less because they are kind of invisible in some extent and then we are kind of have lost this ability of accessing even the periphery even to so i think i like this kind of reversal of violence of on in the sense of how space um, is opened up or closed yeah yeah and watching uh kala azar of course which is the the film that we're going to talk about most congratulations on it because it's a superb piece of work and there's a lot i want to ask and you know knowing you um as i do it really sort of reflects a lot of the things that I know that you're you're interested in artistically, but also you know that there's the the personal element to it as well. But I mean, again, it's a it's an obvious question. But but at the start, what was your your inspiration really in terms of this you know the story as it is, but more the the kind of themes of the film? 
Yes, uh, there are different ways I can answer this question. Um, the Perhaps the, the most sincere, I'm not sure if I'm using the right word, but the, the most honest one I could give is to start from the fact that it, it is actually a kind of autobiographic work in the sense that it, it derives from my um, relation with my parents from my childhood, from growing up in an environment where... Um, both my mother and father were very attached to animal life, but living in the urban environment and living in Greece in the 90s, where it was a place where the streets were full of strays and people didn't have pets, it was not such a thing. So uh, I think growing up um, through this experience of learning to love and to farewell uh, beings that they're unlike ours, but uh, uh, and that we can rescue and, you know, allow them to be part of our familial context. I think that was the the heart of Cal one of the main, you know, points of Kalazar. It's difficult to say that there is a, a story per se. I mean, there is, but it's a very delicate, delicately realized in that sense. But really, it's about a couple who work as kind of cremators of pets, ostensibly. But so they go to houses where a pet has died and, you know, they, they almost kind of enact this ritual of passing. And there's this great scene in the car where the, the, the female character is kind of rehearsing what she's going to say to the, to, you know, to the pet owners when, when, when she gets there. So there's that part of it. And, and again, they get paid. I'm, I'm assuming, again, they go to meet this government official and they kind of get paid through that. But then they also can't avoid the the animals that they see on the road and just picking them up off the road and, and, and taking them to it to, to be cremated. And th there's no sort of motivation behind that beyond what you can actually just garner from the internal thoughts and feelings of the two, of the two characters. And I, I guess, I mean, I suppose my question there is that idea of these two characters and what their reflections on life are and how that then manifests itself in what they what they do, this kind of vocation that they have. Yes. Um, yes, this comes from, again, from a kind of uh, understanding of a landscape, but in a very kind of different perspective of accessing a landscape that hides all these uh, in you know invisible treasures or forgotten lives or you know like uh, premature deaths or um, you know unnoticed lives let's say so again it's very much about uh, not how do you acknowledge a periphery how you create a cartography of a place how you document a place in an alternative method in a sense how how also how can you tidy up i think these two characters and especially the woman uh, she's really uh, a character who's trying to put in order a place that is out of order that is uh, also a, of, of a place where you discover things that they are not claimed and they are not acknowledged so it's really about kind of rearranging the landscape i would say or the inhabitants of the landscape and adjusting like for the viewer perhaps like claiming importance different forms of importance of different beings what it means you know to give uh, value to something that looks uh, insignificant 
so I think that the I mean the female character maybe has more of a depth in her rather than the male character. The male character is like kind of I I plot wise I used to originally see them as one, as one body, like as kind of the archetypes of a male and a female traveling, drifting through space. Um yes. And it, it, I mean, cremation or burying or collecting, it all has to do with the form of acknowledging. Yeah. Linked to that, then, are these two other, again, they're not strands of a plot, really, but they, they come together towards the end, you know, in terms of how the whole film kind of sits together in terms of what's happening. But the female character's parents, the, the father, we see him going to this, what is essentially a chicken factory, you know, in the in the nights, and we don't, you don't really know what's going on at that point. And you know, obviously, you find out towards the end of the film. And then there is this moment where you see two protagonists noticing next door from from their store where they keep some of their equipment that there is like a guns being fired, and it's I don't know if it's the police or the military, but there is something kind of going on there. And again, that that kind of ties in later. It's just interesting to me in terms of this as a, as, a, as a story structure. And like I say, it's a very kind of lightly imposed story in that sense. In terms of the writing of it, because the dialogue, because there is not that much dialogue, did you write it more, as, more in, in a novelistic form or was it scripted as you would normally write a, a script from the start? Yeah, so this, maybe it's better to explain that when I originally wrote it, which was, was in a form of a script, but more in a kind of mise-en-scene format where you have this kind of scene-by-scene scene as a situation, a bit like almost like a video art piece is the one after the other, as situations, I would say more. That was the, the original format, and that was because when we first applied for funding, there was such a funding in the Netherlands, which is the main producer, um, the main production company, there was such a fund where for artists to enter into making their first feature. So they, it had this liberty of making such a proposal, such a script proposal. Then later when the pr more producers, co-producers start entering and we had extra funds and we start building the project uh, and see how we're going to reali realize it, then we, I reworked on the script. But I was always, I think it's, it's clear when you see the film that there is a, um, a strong resistance towards dialogue, text in general, verb, you know, communication in a human level. There is also uh, an elliptical structure of characters or of understanding characters. And I think that happened instinctively. In the script, there is. There is, uh, there is less dialogue, but more character connection. But when we came to shooting, and that goes now to more uh, technical side of the film, of making the film... For me, instinctively, I, I had to um, push away the explanatory part of lending you understand connections. It was about creating bridges of connections and relations and, and these kind of small gestures and textures that connect characters and beings and nature to indoor spaces rather than go with the formal way of understanding characters. So... Just to, 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 to complete this answer is more that the, I think the characters, the father and mother the, and the couple, 
the two couples basically, the main protagonist and the father and mother, they are the ones who stand as archetypes of something. So the father and mother, they're the archetypes of father and mother, of taking care of, taking care of um, a bunch of dogs at home, of pets, but also of, at the end of taking care of the, the main protagonist, the, the woman, the girl. In terms of that, what, what you talk about there, the, the autobiographical element, you know, and consciously casting a, a lead actress who looks like you. I thought it was you for a second, I have to say. I was like, is she, are you starring in that as well? Um, in terms of something being autobiographical, you can take that very literally and say, this is, the, this is my story of my life or something like that. But, but I think this is more to do with your, your understanding of the... the the relationship between humans and animals, but more on, in terms of the way that society sets up the relationship between humans and animals. And I know because spending time in the UK, there's a very different, maybe there's a different cultural perspective on the way that pets are considered in the UK than maybe there is in Greece. But it, it, it's interesting, I think, how, you know, that there is, to me, when I was watching this, this shocking nature, and, and we'll talk about the cinematography, that sense of, how humans and animals are much more on a closer level than we than we really give credit for. We have all of this modernity on top of our understanding of of, of people. And were you really trying to sort of get behind that sense of what when we say humanity, we mean something progressive and civilized, but really humanity is this corporeal, animalistic type of thing. Okay, so yes, the I think again instinctively the actors. Um share similarities but in a sense I mean I think I, I was just attracted to her because I just was I just liked her as an actress and and you know we are usually attracted to what tend to reminds us <laughs> so we never forget us um, so that's one thing um, but regarding the cultural aspect of reading the film I think it's important because uh, on the one hand, depending who sees the Kalazar from which country, um, you get a different reading, certainly. But at the same time, I think it's a film that is cultural, has a culturalness, how you say, like there is free of culture, free of time, free of place, in a sense. There is timelessness, and it could, it, it's also trying to go under cultures and ethics and how we perceive the world depending from where we are coming but rather what it is that connects us all to the world so yes it it has to do with all these minor or major details we share which could be liquids pee or saliva or the way we sleep or eat uh, that connects us in a positive or a negative way with beings that share the same place. So it's a lot about kind of coexistence, how we, we are able to perceive or how misunderstood our notion of coexistence is as humans. That, you know, we learn to live in a world through a big misunderstanding. And that's how we are, we are born in the world already within this notion of a big misunderstanding of who we are and how we belong and what we are meant to be doing. And that, that comes across as well just in the relationship between the couple because on the one hand it's extremely intimate and it's shot that way and we'll talk about the, the, the cinematography in a, in, a, in a second 
But I think there is that sense where, on the one hand, they seem completely compatible and they're living every moment together, more or less. But then there's little clues, is not the right word, but little details, I think, that you give about the fragility of their relationship and how much really are they in sync with each other? And is this just a kind of relationship of circumstance and of a, a shared view of the world really than rather than you know the, these people are fundamentally into in, intertwined and obviously there's a big moment towards the end of the film that disrupts disrupts everything yeah I, I mean w- were you trying to sort of point a little bit to that idea of yeah here is this couple who are completely uh, you know in one sense meant to be together and the same type of people but there is always that aloneness that that fragility yeah I think it has to do a lot with lonesomeness with um, that if you're open and able to see, to, to perceive the world in its greatness, in you know what we share and what we are unable to share, I think there is a, uh, the risk of, of extreme lon- lonesomeness in that. That the moment you, are, uh, you have the sensitivity to see and to appreciate, the world becomes very risky painful and um yeah in in inevitably hard hurtful for for you and for the people around you and i don't not people for the beings around you so like the moment i think you are conscious of how you behave or you are to other beings also like not to talk not only about humans then you realize the you know that you can only exist as an enemy of towards life other than yours because you know we live in the in a particular environments that are very hostile uh, to others so yes i think that's where the lonesomeness of characters uh, comes from but it's interesting isn't it then how that almost is in tension with the the way that the film is shot in terms of the intimacy and you know when i was watching just sort of that the way that it, it, to me, kind of undermines the binary between beauty and ugliness and that how that's done through the use of close-up particularly. So you have the, the intimacy between people and animals and showing that in a way that, you know, many people would be like, oh my God, that's, that's really too, you know, <laughs> too intimate with an animal as it, as it were. But it seems you were trying to sort of negate that that humanistic separation and and almost being you know anti Hollywood in in revealing the using close up to reveal imperfections and blemishes and characters as part of the land and the dogs prowling around the wasteland and the humans doing the same thing. Yes, um, it's funny um, that reading you know like um, uh, receiving comments about the film one of the main ones was that it's a it's disgusting or it makes you feel disgust when you watch it. and I was like what <laughs> I never ever thought or realized why because for me it's a familiar place it's a place where I feel in ease because I come from that uh, clo- close up uh, <laughs> relation with um, 
cleaning a, the, the teeth of a dog, for example, or, you know, sitting on the ground with a, all this. Uh, so it, I think it really depends on where you're coming from or how you perceive these things. But definitely there is an attempt, and again, it's an instinctive methodology, I think, in the film that came just came by itself from the beginning of shooting the film, also cinematographically, to... <sighs> to document landscape, but not as a, this kind of notion of, um, a la you know, this exotic landscape we were trying to access, but it's out there, these general thoughts, but it's something much more fragile, open, wounded, um, hidden, myster mysterious, but also very humane. And I think in order to do that, the going closer uh, was a way to scale up or under you know, change the hierarchies in the way we observe what we think it's precious and what is not, or what is, you know, human-centered or not human, you know, anthropocentric. No, for sure. And I think it just goes to show, you know, that kind of reaction is as much about the kind of cinema and the kind of imagery we're used to seeing. You know, everything has got this perfect sheen to it, you know, whether it's human bodies or, or landscapes. And, you know, just seeing the bodies having sex, but not in a voyeuristic kind of way, and the woman bathing with her dog, the, the, the apples just placed on the, on, the, on the bodies of the animals. And then, the, the, you know, the scene of him peeing on the, on the wound, really, that sort of corporeality and carnality and, you know, the, the, the sense of the, the, the fleshiness of the human body is not something you're, you're really used to seeing, I, I, I think. And that's where the... You know, on the one hand, some, where that reaction might come from, but also this is making us see what is the reality of our, our, our mortal bodies and our mortal selves. Yeah, and in a sense, it's a very familiar thing. You know, it doesn't require you great, uh, critical <laughs> something like to, 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 to get to that, to understand it or to accept it, or you, you don't need to be of an age or of a background. You know, it, everyone can familiarize, I think, with... With that, what I, I think it's scary for viewers to do, in a sense, like the, the kind of the letdown, in a sense, for viewing such a film, apart, you know, from the close-ups and rawness that everything has in the film, is the fact that it doesn't allow you linearity. It doesn't take you easily through a process of characters, plot line, because. I think in the same way that the close-ups and documentation of places and people and bodies and characters is made in the film, in the same way the linearity of a narrative is also played out in the film in a format that claims the same thing, that you know our connections in order to tell a story, to acknowledge a story, is not in a character-driven, clear plot, because life is not formed in this way. There are so many things we skip that they are much more about details and connections in a smaller scale. One scene I wanted to ask you about was the roller skating moment. And was that her, her one moment of, do you know what, I just want to escape and I want to be able to enjoy and have fun, not think about all of this, and that, that we all have, you know, no matter how politically or culturally engaged and and it's like this is my moment just to forget everything and and maybe the you know the fantasy of of leaving this life kind of thing yeah they has i think it 
she as a character and for example in the roller skate there is an immaturity in her character in the way she she tries in these landscapes she's trying to tidy up which is a very mature act of you know having to acknowledge and then take care of dead bodies for example of an animals dead bodies at the same time she has an immaturity that maybe her age you know allows her maybe not but this this attempt to also um, think be in a world like this but how are you able to be in a world like this without thinking so much you know without being so conscious and i think maybe that's a moment that maybe she at attempts to do that there but also I think it's a friction moment between the two characters where you see that they are not in sync yeah and you mentioned there that that great scene of uh of the father of Tassos uh, cleaning the, the the teeth of the dog with the keys which is just one just a wonderful moment and you know obviously the the father role is played by your father who I who I know and you know, it's just so. I just thought, you know, this is absolute perfect casting. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like this sort of stoic philosopher, but yet, you know, real um, man of the people is the wrong word, but just kind of an ordinary man, but has this sort of deeper intellect and uh, and and style. You know, were, were you always going to cast him? And uh, you know, what did what what did he bring? You know, not just kind of aesthetically, but also him being around the project. Yeah, I mean, Tassos, he's, he has been uh, playing in, in other works uh, that I have been making, more kind of video artworks. But uh, so we are, by that time, by Kalazar time, we were already get used working with each other in one way or another. But I think the first time I asked him to play, you know, on, on camera, yeah, he, 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 he couldn't accept it. He was not... He's not a person who's an actor who was ever interested to be one, but I think he and and the reason that he's um, he's there in Kalazar and all the previous works is because he's just playing himself and this and for me it was the, you know this father grave digger uh, who buries one pet after another every time they pass because. Also, Calazar is about these different circles of life, the smaller circle of an animal who lives, of a dog who lives 15 years, to the bigger circle, lifespan of, um, that's what I mean, circle, lifespan of, of a human who lives, you know, hopefully, I don't know, 90 years. Um, so, and it's this meeting point. And for me, this father figure has been carrying, carrying on through the works. Yeah, and I think, yeah, Tassos was very naturally kind of placed within the context of Calazar. It was a very natural thing, but he plays himself and is in a way he and the film is like a tribute to all the pets he has been burying through the years in our family house in one way. Yeah. The ending is just brutal and elegiac and and beautiful and abstract and surreal in a way i mean it was that a, a kind of evidence or an example of the influence of you know your your video art practice your art gallery work because it did it did seem like oh this is this is an art gallery performance piece that happens to be in in, in the film yeah strangely enough this was the starting point of Calazar. this was an idea like um, that I and that I was aiming to do it as a video art piece, as you said, and then I decided not to, and I hold back to it, and then it came back in Calazar and found a place, which was 
in one way or another, it was a little bit difficult to find the exact place where it should belong in Kalazar at what point. And I think that's why it couldn't be anywhere else apart from the ending, you know, this kind of closure of what kind of... There you understand what kind of film it is for, in a sense, to conclude like this. But uh, yes, it, I mean, some people were saying that it's like a bit like Roy Anderson reference or something, yeah of that kind but um i don't know i don't i, I think it it's again something very honest coming from my own art practice from my own um attempt to connect cinematographic language a personal cinematographic language with actual situations and actual landscapes and actual use of lands and that includes animals and, as you say, like workers in the periphery. So it's a very honest, uh, um, I don't know, experiment, let's say, within the context of Calazar. It doesn't try to imitate something or to bring, you know, a video art moment with, you know, like an artistic extra um, credit in the film. It, it really came as a kind of natural force to conclude in this way because as I said Calazar I think it's, it ends up especially with that kind of ending being a tribute to non-humans to this kind of um, making decision of where to end life of, of that doesn't belong to us no it's it's it certainly kind of it, it works within not just the, the, the sort of uh structure of the film as it is um but it really it, it sort of ties i think really really nicely to the the way that an audience has to work to understand the relationships between the humans and the animals but the humans and the humans and how we understand our relationship to what our place is in in the world and it it, it makes me think about like a film like this in relationship to say other films which i think it's very difficult to but also in terms of your previous work your fine art practice and and the, the the short film that you've done before Exit K One, and I, I think one of the thing one of the themes that sort of runs through it for me is this. I'm trying to find the right word, and the only word I could come up with, with, with is a kind of confrontationalism, but I don't mean that in a, an aggressive way or in a didactic way. You know, like you're trying to teach people a lesson. It's more of a sense of look, look, this is who we are. This is the world that we live in. And the world that we really don't want to see, and yeah, I just wondered if that was the yes. if that sort of struck you know if that sort of strikes a chord in terms of what some of your themes are. Yeah, this is this is I think nicely put the way you say it because uh, and I didn't know I think after Calazar I started realizing that this is the format in uh, to talk for me personally to talk about things that you know. I'm struggling with, and this is the way I can do it. And it uh, indeed, I don't have um, a didactic need in the works. There is not this kind of educational didactic element in it, you know, to tell you of, to educate of, you know, how you should perceive animals. It's more to confront you with who you are, who we are as humans. And uh, often, you know, it's said that it's a film about animals with animals, and you know that I'm. It's so much richness about animality and animals. And I think it's really about um, uh, fleshing out the human presence there. You know, like really what are human um, 
existence is when it has to face all these other existences around. So it's, I think it's much more about mirroring our human existence within the context of something that is not just anthropocentric and what happens then. So yeah, I think the confrontation element in it, it's, it's more to, you know, a harsh comment upon our existence rather than a didactic or a positive, you know, future outcome that may come out of it. I think it's much more pessimistic <laughs> comment. The, the reception has been really, really good. You know, it sh- showed at, at Rotterdam and, um, you know, it's got had some great reviews, some of the ones that, that, that I saw. I mean, it was it was unfortunate, I think, that it was sort of scuppered a little bit by the by the pandemic, but it's been released now by by movie and uh yeah i mean it, I, I wondered you know it's your first feature how have you how have you sort of viewed the whole process of it being out in the world and having to kind of talk about it like this i mean now it's a little bit after the fact no i think it um it went through different phases because when you make a thing a film like this and is your and i'm not coming from a film background and and my aim was not to make a film you know that it makes things work it was just almost like an experiment of what could work. Uh, and in this case, uh, I, it, it was great to see this, the, um, how it could survive uh, among, you know, in a film context, in film festivals internationally. I think that was very interesting for me to see, you know, that it does survive. And not only it survives, but it actually, it's understood. It clearly understood what it, it's the aim and we were trying to communicate. So I think Rotterdam was one of these kind of successes of the film, of to be there, to win, to, you know, be discussed. And, um, and it had a release like in cinemas, in, in like 24 cinemas in the Netherlands. So it had a, like a proper release, but that was after the first lockdown. And so after Rotterdam, it was the, the, the whole pandemic kind of ruined the, <laughs> the possibilities of the film being presented um but it continued it carried on in festivals so it's been like in i don't know 20 30 25 30 festivals so far and and yeah and we could get feedback to some extent again it's not like that i can feel really understand how people perceive it at all times but you get the reviews and usually you know you get either awful reviews or great reviews and i mean from the the big uh, uh, how you say the big um, critic we have we have beautiful reviews that understand you know the core of the film and i think that's a success for galazar to achieve that in such an elliptical and yeah in a very personal way i suppose personal world that it constructs yeah well it definitely does that for sure so are you um, are you working on something now have you got something in another film in the pipeline yeah, and another confrontation on film. <laughs> yeah, another confrontation on film. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, thankfully, I think that was one of the goods of the lockdowns that I managed to put my head down and start writing uh, almost immediately after Rotterdam, let's say. And then the producers, the Dutch producers and the Greek producers, they're all on board. So now I have a, like a, f- a first outline of it, and we are also in Torino uh, Lab, which is a great place to also be to develop the script and take it to a you know a, a production level. Uh, yeah, so now we're working on that, and it is a film again about humans and animals in a 
rural environment. We hope to be an English uh, language film, a shot maybe some, somewhere in North Europe, perhaps. Uh, uh, and uh, yes, and it talks about um, a world where uh, babies are not born any longer. You know, humans are unable to give birth. But there is a, a bit of a, how you say, a twist in, on that that makes us face what it means, again, animal life and what it means to take care of a life that it doesn't look like us, that is not similar to us, but it's still, you know, the continuation of us. Well, I can't wait to uh, see what, what comes next, Janice. And uh, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Sari. Okay, so there we are. Thanks very much to to Janice for taking the the time to to speak to me. Um, yeah, it was just it was just really nice to talk to her again on a sort of personal level, but then to be able to have that that time to discuss the film and and it was everything I kind of I expected and wanted in terms of an interview as somebody who's really insightful and knows knows their sense of what their art form is and it, and sometimes it's you don't get that from a filmmaker, you know, that they, they, they just reluctant to, to, to give that much. And it was just gratifying to, to listen to it, to a lot of that. And Neil, what did you make of it? Um, yeah, I thought the film was, was wonderful. Um, and I really love the interview. And uh, yeah, I read, uh, Janice's, uh, introduction to the film on the movie notebook, which was again, really, really thoughtful. And I think that, I think there are a huge number of what we might call traditional narrative filmmakers, or, you know, just filmmakers as opposed to kind of artist filmmakers who are fantastic at that kind of conceptual thought process. But I think it's much more common to find artist filmmakers and artists who then kind of make moving image work able to kind of conceptualise and, 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 and critique both the kind of the aesthetics and the ideologies they end up working it with when they're in film. And I think there's more of a willingness to engage in a discussion around the work not necessarily about what the work means but how it feels and what it's trying to conjure and convey as an experience in in the audience and I think that yeah she's just a really kind of erudite and yeah sort of fascinating artist um and there were so many sort of parts of the conversation that really sort of struck home you know I, I love this idea of a confrontation on film because I think that the film itself is not overtly confrontational. I think that the material that she she's working with could have been much more, you know, kind of aggressively mm. put forward. But oh, the yeah, confrontation yeah. is 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 kind of yeah, really interestingly put over. Mm. You know, it's kind of really woven yeah. into the the intimacy of the film. I thought it was a really, you know, I watched it and then sort of read the thing and then hearing her talk about sensuality. You know, because I found it a really sensual experience and a really tactile experience and an experience which yeah, really yeah, focused yeah. on, yeah, kind of physical relationships, physical relationship with yeah. the landscape, physical relationship with the natural world, physical relationship with animals and physical relationship with other human beings. You know, I just I thought it was really beautiful. And it's interesting because you'd said to me when the film played Rotterdam about sort of, I think it was last year and we, sort of, we talked about hopefully 
hopefully doing this. And then when it came up again, you sort of said about be warned, you know, because I'm a, I've got a dog. Um, and, uh, <laughs> you know, so then I'm kind of thinking, oh, it's going to be, you know, um, like the start of John Wick. Um, <laughs> or the end of the club. Yeah. God, God yeah. Thanks for reminding me of that. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, but I think that I've, I didn't necessarily find it as upsetting because of, yeah, just the sheer love and empathy that, that is kind of is apparent throughout the film you know i think that what's interesting is like for me and because the film was not out to to show overt cruelty to animals but to place animals in a kind of just in in the system of capitalism and the system of humanity alongside human beings i just i found it yeah deeply touching because when you've got a dog and i've had my dog 11 years now you're very aware of mortality you know both the dogs and your own and and the end, or he's just barking now because he's... <laughs> he wants to get in on the action. Well, well on. he's on, on cue, you know. And and all of the little daily sort of intimacies that you share with them were really beautifully rendered, you know, um, which then leads to this kind of devastating final act emotionally, um, which won't spoil because I think it's, it's, it's absolutely beautifully done. Um, and, yeah, I just it's just a really deeply moving film about, about animals including human beings and you know and relationships physical relationships between between them and then hearing hearing sort of janice's conversation with you i love this idea of autobiographical fiction i just listened to the writer ocean vuong on talk easy you know and this idea that which is a fantastic it's fantastic conversation but um just this idea that you know of what what you bring from your life and those experiences that then become your work and the difference between writing what you know and diarising and actually kind of recalibrating and sharing a lived experience and the, the way she blends her autobiography into, into a film that feels rendered, you know, and feels, re, you know, sort of real in a story sense, I think was absolutely magical. Yeah, I really, I, I loved all of it. Great. Oh, it's, that's, that's good to hear. And um, the other thing that sort of, I mean, there's various things that sort of struck me, but that, the way that the the film kind of sits in a in a in a cultural context, you know, to sort of broaden it out a little bit, and you know, I know people have written about this idea of it being a, you know, a dystopia, and and even Janice sort of talks about it. it's, t- you know, it's timeless and it's it's placeless. It could be any sort of southern European wasteland in in, in a sense, even though obviously it's in in the Greek language, but to me, it's less of a dystopia in this is an alternative reality or this is a future after a, an apocalyptic moment. This is more about the the idea of people are living these kind of lives on the periphery. And I think, I know you haven't seen the film yet, but it's an, it really is an, an interesting sort of companion to something like Nomadland in a way that this is the focus on people are living in these itinerant lives, really, you know, and, and having to be adopting a sort of relationship to modernity and civilization that absolutely recognizes that, this is a world that is dying, so we're adop- adopting a position that everybody is going to have to adopt at, at some point, which is really quite pessimistic. And and you know, and, and that's what I mean. I think when I sort of got into that idea of the conversation about confrontation, it, it was more about that sense that we're all having to confront things constantly now. And you know, interestingly, the the, the sort of main character, she, you know, the, the surrogate for for Janice, more, more or less, it's that. And that that question of wanting to wanting to bring order to a place that is out of order, but 
but the melancholia of not knowing that you're never going to be able to solve that problem is really quite that's what i meant by by it being sort of a a, a tough watch but but in a very a very deep way rather than a it's a tough watch in terms of here's all this gore and i think that the the ending very much feeds into that but then also that moment you know you get this in the grand scheme of a film that is sort of delicate and nuanced and and with and doesn't have a lot of exposition there is a quite a a rupturing moment that that blows apart the relationship between the two main main characters that has an awful lot of import even though it is you know it's not a big spectacle at all you know it's just what it means to mm. them yeah and that and that kind of instant understanding of the fragility of of life and relationships you know and how how we're always one step away from it not not working out on a kind of societal level but also on a kind of personal level um and it's the way the film yeah is so interested in the relationship of those people to the landscape that builds up all of these small interactions which sort of have a cumulative effect on that overall theme of the film you know it reminded me a lot of um Gianfranco Rossi's Fire at Sea you know which is taking a very contemporary um situation but there's a way of kind of capturing it which I think both removes it from the kind of almost a documentary immediacy which is trying to convey a truth into a slightly reflexive and kind of contextual way of looking at it but then by doing that makes it uh, sort of impossible to escape the immediacy and the fact that this is now it's almost doing that thing of saying you you can feel like this is a dystopia but really it's you know it's kind of what's happened to children of men you know where you know you could project on children of men that this is where we were headed and then watching it now you're like actually yeah this is this is now you know it's 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 a way of seeing both the future and and the now and, and showing that we're not headed towards these things these things are both here but also i think what's beautiful about color azar is the way it it brings animals in is it says that these are not this is not a new situation for us you know this is the situation for us our relationship to the world has always been complicated and complex you know and we have a specific set of contexts but the the fundamentals of how we live with each other and how we live in a space with the planet um and how we respond to that is is a long standing thing and that it just sort of collapses those things beautifully in this in this very yeah kind of small way and i don't use small as a derogatory i think you know that these these two people in a van doing this doing a very simple job which is a very small part of the is is a way of really exploding the bigger questions um yeah and yeah just it, it felt like a filmmaker in tune with the world that they were responding to but didn't want to respond to it overly literally which was nice but also was able throughout through these kind of small interactions to to speak to larger questions of sort of empathy and capitalism and things like that i mean i love that the the it, the reiteration of the the script and just how the, the the script that they so their job is to collect beloved collect beloved pets and take them for cremation and then return them, you know. Um, and then you you hear them sort of say the 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 script of you know your your pet will be cremated individually and returned to you within twenty four hours. And then you see the practice of that and what that actually is and what it means. And you're like, oh, well, of course, like that. There's this there's this thing we say, but then there's the reality. And then how how they live within that contradiction. And that yeah, complexity, yeah, yeah. and then that, and that contradiction then plays out again when it comes to them picking up the animals on the roadside. Like there's the two moments, like they go to the the guy 
who is it's obviously against the rules, against the law to, to pick up these roadkill, essentially. So this, this, this official kind of lambast them for doing that. And then, and then when she sees the, there's one moment where, where they're on the freeway and, and she sees the dog on the road and, you know, there's cars going past honking the, the horn saying, just leave it, leave it. And it's really weird then how you get on the one hand, these pet owners really invested with the, the passing of their, of their pets. And then these other people who just do not give a shit, you know what I mean? And it's really interesting how, where do we get value in relationships from and it's you know it's a real ethical question meta ethical question about how we we value things and you know it's, it's kind of nihilistic in a sense yeah because a lot of those people driving past probably have pets and they love their pets but the stray dog that lives on you know that's been not that's been killed on the side of the road that's that's not their concern you know it says it says so much about yeah and that, and that idea of you know we're putting all these animals in a furnace you know but we can't put these animals in a furnace why? Well, because the numbers, because you're reporting numbers, or because it costs more. Energy. Like, what is it? But we know those. But we know that there's a kind of yeah, it doesn't add up ethically and morally because it's you know it's been reduced to the individual and the individual's understanding of this moment and this space. And and they're just the the two main characters are such a great almost silent. I love the lack of dialogue. You know, you just they just go through it. We just watch them inhabit these spaces and these these situations. Um, Sorry, and then the main dramatic moment reminds them and reminds the audience that they're guilty too. Like, because yeah. you could be all that. Look at these do-gooders. You know what I mean? Their self-righteous sort of job that they. Mm. Why are they so much better than it? And it's like they're not. That they are. That's it. Comes from a guilt of their contribution to this this world that is so you know that is so profoundly problematic. You know, in the in, in the treatment of each other and and the treatment of the land and animals. You know. Yeah. And you know th- th- that idea that you sort of you sort of said about um, sort of you know when we were sort of putting the episode together, you know, the idea of a character who wants to bring order to a place that is out of order, you know, is kind of the ultimate paradox of working in a capitalist system about changing it from the inside and doing your bit, you know, like what actually means and what's really possible and how futile it is to even think that you are doing anything other than just surviving in that system and that those that the, the, the good you're doing is so minute. But then as you sort of said in the interview, like that there's such a beautiful visual representation of what's possible when she cuts the apple and puts the apple in with the animals. Like it's such a beautiful moment of like and it feels huge. It feels like that's a huge gesture of care for these dead animals that you don't know but but this this trying to do something which is having a positive effect on the world in such a small way is both simultaneously futile but also beautiful because it's like well you couldn't you could not do it but the time that the filmmaker spends with that gesture is so profound you know um and beautiful you know it's it, there's so many beautiful sequences which are just in and of themselves beautiful yeah, like the like the thing you talk about the roller skating and the 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 performance for the chickens at the end. It makes you feel massively complicated, but you're also like, this is right now. This is beautiful, and sometimes that's all there is. Great. Well, I'm really really glad you liked it. I mean, Janice is a an artist slash filmmaker who I have always known has had this kind of you know talent, really, for want of a better word. But you know, but also kind of con- concern and seriousness for the work. Um, and you know it's it's up there. I mean, she's she's got a, another film in the pipeline, as we mentioned, which, funnily enough, does have a sort of uh, children of men element to it. I think uh, it sounds like anyway. And and 
you know, I, it wouldn't surprise me if after another, you know, feature, we start to see her work in, you know, maybe in the same vein as Alice Rohrwacker or, you know, even a sort of Kelly Reichardt going, going forward in terms of recognition, you know, that this is somebody who will go through festivals and then suddenly everybody will be like, oh yeah, here's a, this is a great filmmaker, you know what I mean? I'd like to see that because I think that I was a bit on the movie sort of description, you know, like, because it's Greek, it's kind of the movie description sort of, you know, put it in the weird category, put yeah, it in yeah, the weird, no. and I'm like, this is not, this no, is not, not. Um, Lanthimos weird Greek, no, you know, it's not Athena no. Rachel Sangari, this is something else, you know, I think it is much closer to Raw Walker and, and Reichardt, you know, um, and I thought it was interesting at the start of the film, it sort of says that the film was made in the context of the building, and I sort of looked that up and I was like, oh, you know, it's a specific project for, as it says, films that are on the cusp between cinematography and visual art, which is where we would say, Rohrwacker and I mean Kelly Reichardt's interesting because she's an American filmmaker so but, yeah, but yeah, we yeah, certainly yeah. feel that you know we feel yeah. that these are the cinematic representations of an artist's work um, and I, I'd love to see more films because I think you're right I think we there's a sensibility in there which is not like other Greek films and I can see why people say that in order to get people to watch it but it's 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 much closer I think to other yeah kind of contemporary uh, I don't want to say magical realism, um, no, no. but uh, but but you know films that are kind of regarded as that. But certainly these kind of interesting quasi science fiction sort of takes on, on on contemporary Europe, I think are yeah. It's it's it's. I'm really excited to see what what comes next, and look forward to having her back on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. And that's why I didn't mention it in the interview because I just didn't see it in that context at all. So yeah, um, absolutely, yeah, great. Uh, yeah, so that'll do for the. Uh, the main episode. Um, if you are a Patreon subscriber, you're gonna you can come and continue the conversation on the bonus episode. I think maybe we'll have a little bit of a chat about trying to deal with uh, work of people that you know and how. <laughs> I think that's an interesting conversation. And uh, and then also maybe I, I thought about Neil talking about the idea of your relationship to art at different points in time in your life. Maybe we could have a little bit of a, a chat about that. Um, might be an interesting way to go. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Can't wait. Great. So, do you want to do you want to just very quickly trail the next episode with uh, Nick Rapold? Yeah. So the next episode will be my conversation with the incredibly patient uh, Nicholas Rapold, <laughs> um, who yeah I talked to about podcasting and his brilliant film podcast, The Last Thing You Saw, um, and yeah we just talked about film culture and I think once I've done a massive editing job on it. Um, it'll be a really great conversation and I'm looking forward to, to sharing that. Yeah, it was really nice to spend time with someone. I really I really like his writing and I really like his podcast and been a long time admirer of his kind of his approach to, to film criticism and sort of film culture. So excited for people to hear that one. And that'll be up next. And then we've got a couple more in the pipeline before we have our summer break. Indeed. Big big season this year. So let's look at Massive. The, the amount Massive. of uh, podcasts we've got out there. Which but... is good because uh, with, with a new arrival, I'm not sure... I'm sure how how much energy you're going to have in September indeed we might have to reassess the schedule the schedule again but that's all fine that's all fine um yeah so uh, please come and join us on on the patreon with our bonus uh, episode but if not thanks for your support anyway this has been the cinematologist podcast thanks for listening mm-hmm.